Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. We're in Matthew chapter 5. As we continue our study in the book of Matthew, why it matters. And so let's begin. Let's just read our text tonight. Um, I'm going to give you guys an opportunity tonight. And and the opportunity is that I am going to fly you through the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And I'm going to give you enough that you will leave satisfied, but that you can go back through the sermon and with clarity of outline understand the things that Jesus is saying and, and, and harvest details, harvest personal things uh, and whatnot. Um, we're not going to read it verbatim. The reason why I am doing this is because probably 70% of you that are here are very familiar with this red letter section of the New Testament. Uh, it's all words of Jesus. It's all stuff um, that's on plaques. It's taught constantly. Pastor Bobby did a series on the Sermon on the Mount, going through it line by line not long ago. And I believe 70% of you probably know most of this stuff by heart. The other 30% of you, you probably will in the not too distant future. If you're newer to the things of God, uh, this is just one of those passages that you're constantly in. And so we're not going to go line by line through this, but we're going to go through it tonight Uh, And I believe that the Lord has a message for us in the big picture of what this sermon represents and what it's all about. But we are going to read the first three verses of chapter uh, 5. message tonight is called The Sermon That Set Me Free. It tells us here, it says that seeing the multitudes, he, that is Jesus, went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came to him. And it says that he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the time in which this segment and this sermon takes place is very early in the ministry of Jesus. We saw uh, last week that he has begun his public ministry. He has taken on the role of a common rabbi. He has begun preaching and teaching, and he has created quite a following. At the close of chapter 4, it tells us that there are multitudes of people that are now following him from the entire region, not just Galilee, specifically the neighborhoods where he is, but even from over the border into Syria, as far down as Judah in the south, 70 miles away, there is quite a, a gathering of people, even at this early time in Jesus' ministry. And I'm certain that in a multitude of people like that, there's a lot of reasons represented why people are there i'm sure there's some that jesus has inspired hope they're hearing something in him and seeing something in him that is stirring in their spirit and it's drawing them closer to god there's probably some people that are coming because they're curious anytime there's a crowd you know that's going to draw upon the curiosity of people and they want to know maybe what they don't know yet and so they're drawn curiously i'm certain that there are skeptics 
critics among them, people that are coming only to be critical. We know that there are Pharisees and religious people amongst them, uh, and their, their, their sole purpose is just to evaluate hoping that there's something wrong with Jesus so as to diminish his influence for the sake of their own influence. You know, so there's a whole bunch of people that are there for many different reasons. But in this time now where there's a multitude, Jesus withdraws to a place where he now begins to give this sermon. Now, there are two things that I shared with you last week that I want to remind you of because they tie into this sermon in a very important way. One of those things that I shared last week, I'll say it again quickly, is that Jesus has come to a a point where as a rabbi who can call disciples, he is in a sense ordained. He has what they called smika or authority, meaning that he had the right and the ability to interpret scripture. He could be a Talmudic scholar or a Talmudic author. He could write things that were commentaries on the scripture that would carry authority with people. And so Jesus was an interpreter, in a sense, of the Old Testament. He had the authority to do that. Now, I also shared with you last week that an individual's ra- an individual rabbi's personal approach or bent or interpretation of the scriptures was referred to in that society and culture as his yoke you would be yoked by the rabbi that you taught or or were taught by now the sermon on the mount what this represents and why that's so important is because this is the collective body of jesus doctrine or jesus teaching This sermon, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is Jesus' interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures. This is what he taught. And that's an amazing thing to realize what Jesus is doing here. This is probably one of the most valuable pieces of literature in the whole world. Just this sermon that's right here. Because essentially, it's Jesus saying, you guys have read the Old Testament. Maybe you get it. Maybe you don't but I'm going to tell you what it means. And Jesus had a level of authority that went way beyond that which anyone else had because Jesus was the author. And so for Jesus to give the commentary on that which can be sometimes misunderstood or hard to understand is extremely valuable to you and I because it helps us to understand what the Old Testament scriptures were intended to bring us to or intended to make us to understand. Now, The Sermon on the Mount is extremely simple. If you were to have a table of contents, it breaks up into three segments. They are, if you're taking note, first of all, intent. That is, God is going to give to us, right at the beginning, Jesus is going to give to us the intent or the intention that God had for giving us the Bible. You ever ask that question to yourself? Is why, why the Word? Why the Bible? Why the Old Testament? Why the Torah? Jesus is going to tell us why. He's going to give us God's intention for giving us the Bible. That's number one. Number two is the content. That is the actual information that's imparted throughout the lines of the sermon. That's the majority of the text. The content. And then finally, number three, the third segment is the assignment. What is our response? Every sermon should require a response. And so the intent, the content, and the assignment. And it begins with the intent right there 
the very first word in verse 3 where it says the word blessed. The first word that Jesus uses as he addresses this multitude, his introduction to his sermon, he uses the word blessed. Now, any time that you want to move a person or a group of people toward change. So let's say that you are a leader. So maybe you are a parent and you want to move a child toward adulthood. You're trying to move them to grow up. Or maybe you're a manager of a, of, a, of a business or an operation, and you're trying to move the people that are under you towards profitability. You're trying to move them somewhere. Or maybe you're a prophet, and you want to move people towards purpose. You want to take them from where they are, and you want to move them somewhere else. Or in this case, you're a savior, and you want to move people to wholeness, to completion, And that's your objective. You're a leader and you want to move someone somewhere. Here's a principle of human nature that you've got to understand no matter what context you're in when you're trying to move someone from somewhere to somewhere else. And that is that inspiration is way more important than instruction. Inspiration is way more important than instruction. And the reason for that is because people, and that includes Every one of us, we resist change until we want it. Anybody here resist change? You have a hard time changing things? I I know that I do. I don't want to change. I kind of like routine. I like things the way they are until I want change. Once I want change, I'm okay with it. People change things all the time, right? Like we change our style. We change our hair. Sometimes we change jobs. Sometimes we'll change our lifestyle. We don't want to do that until we want to, until there's a reason something empowers our desire. Now, Jesus, and the reason I say that is because Jesus, whose main reason for coming to the earth is to move people from the status quo of their existence into something altogether different, is about to preach a sermon to a group of people, and he is going to challenge their mode of beliefs, He's going to tell them that they're living according to an insufficient standard of righteousness, that their good deeds aren't good enough. He's going to tell them that they're doing life wrong. You guys are doing it wrong. And then he's going to tell them what they should be doing instead. Now, let me ask you personally, how do you feel when someone comes into your life and they tell you those things? They come to you and say, hey, you're doing it all wrong. You don't have a clue about life. You think you're good? You're really horrible. You know, but let me tell you how you should do it. How do you respond to that? I know how I respond. <laughs> you know, that's, that's my natural inclination. Now, the difference maker, the difference between being isolated by someone who's trying to bring me somewhere and being inspired by someone who's trying to bring me somewhere, it comes down to the true intention behind what they're trying to do. What's the true intention? Now, if someone's approaching me for change and I feel like they're manipulating me, if I feel like they're insulting me, if I feel like I'm insufficient or not good enough, if I feel like I'm being patronized by the things that they're saying, then my, my, my reaction is that I isolate, I crystallize, I harden, I feel like I'm being controlled, like someone's trying to take away my freedom, and, and I withdraw, I create distance because I can't respond to that. You're, you're doing something to me unwelcome that I don't want you to. Now, 
On the other hand, if someone approaches me and I genuinely feel like I'm loved by that person, like I'm admired, like they like me, like I'm favored, like I'm accepted, like I'm trusted, like I belong to them, or or there's a sense of belonging and openness, and I'm inspired by them, that changes everything. Now, they could have the same message But I'm open, I'm receptive, I'm courageous, I'm motivated by what they say. There's a readiness in me to change, and I might even be relentless in my pursuit to become what it is that they're inspiring me to become. Because I'm not just being instructed, I'm being inspired. Now, here's the problem. It's very easy to have good intentions when we're trying to move someone from some place to another. It's very difficult to teach and instruct and correct and communicate good intentions while you're giving hard-to-swallow instructions. And that's what amazes me about Jesus and about this sermon. Intention must be known before instruction can make an impact. I have this uh, thing that, that I think of, this phrase that sticks in my mind constantly. It's relational equity. Sometimes it happens in my own home, in my own life with my kids, that there's something going on that I know isn't right. They're thinking in an improper way. Maybe they're behaving in an improper way. They're looking at life or something in an improper way. And I'll look at what they're doing, and I'll, and I'll see it from a distance, and I'll see what the problem is. And, and having walked where they walked and lived where they live and, having, and knowing them the way that I know them, being their dad... I'll know what the instruction is that they need in order to get them where they need to go. I I see it as clear as day because I've been there and I understand it. But there are times that I look at the situation and the thing that they're going through and I realize, you know what, in this season, I don't have the relational equity necessary to address this problem. Because if I go in as I want to right now and just tell them everything that's wrong with them and what they need to do to correct it, they're not, there isn't in this season right now the kind of closeness or the kind of bond, bridge, or trust that's necessary for them to receive with inspiration the thing that I'm saying. And so I'm learning as a parent, sometimes as a husband, as a pastor, as a friend, that I need to keep my mouth shut even though I see something crystal clear because I can't inspire, I don't have the relational equity to win this person's confidence that I have their best interest in mind and not my own. And so it's amazing to me to realize what Jesus is able to do. If the only time I communicate with my kids or with my friends or with whoever is when I want to teach, correct, or instruct then good luck. I have found I've had no success in winning someone to my persuasion. If my intent is purely selfish behind trying to get someone to move from where they are to where I'd like them to be, good luck. It's impossible to inspire someone when my intentions are selfish. Money works for a little while, (laughs) but it won't last uh, completely. And here's the point. The point is this, is that the why must come before the what. And if the why isn't right, then the what doesn't matter. Do you follow that? The why comes before the what. Why do I need to move from where I am to where I'm going? And if the why isn't 
in the right place for the right reason, then the what doesn't matter. Nobody's going to listen at all to anything I have to say. So Jesus leads in with the why. Jesus leads in with that which will inspire us to understand why it is that we should listen to what he has to say, even though it might be offensive to it. And it comes down to one word, the word blessed. That is the entire reason that God gave us his word, the Old Testament scriptures, the Torah, the law, the reason that he sent Jesus to interpret it and make us understand it is because God's desire is to bless our lives. The word bless means happy, prosperous, to be content, to be successful, to have a sense of well-being. Jesus is saying that God's intention for you is that he wants you to win. He wants you to grow. He wants you to advance. He wants you to discover and enjoy your life in a way that's complete, lasting, and sustainable. He wants you to be a blessing for yourself for the other people around you, and to live in a way that glorifies God. That's what God wants for you. He wants you to be blessed. Now, I want to be careful to say this here, and if you've tuned me out, tune me back in, is that Jesus is not saying that God wants you to be happy. Have you heard this one? Oh, God wants me to be happy, and I'm not happy right now, and so I have an opportunity to do something that will make me happy, And so God wants me to be happy, and so therefore I can do the thing that I want to do because I want to be happy. Listen, I want you to understand something. God wants you to be blessed. And part of being blessed, yes, there is a degree of happiness to it. But did you know that you can be happy and yet not be blessed? You can also be blessed, and you can be going through a season or a time or a circumstance where you're not happy. So happy and blessed are not the same thing. You can be happy if you go knock back a couple. You can get happy. That's not blessed. That's not sustainable. That's not going to bring you where you want to go. You can have money. You can achieve. You can win something. All of those things may make you happy, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's lasting, wholesome, and blessed. But here's what God is saying, essentially, right at the outset. He's saying that my intention, the reason why I speak to you, is because I want to give you what you need for your life to become what I intended it to be when I thought of you, formed you, and breathed life into you. That's my desire. And I know how to do it. And if you'll listen to the things that I'm saying, I can lead you there. I will get you there. And Jesus lived in such a way and demonstrated his intention in such a way that people listened to him. He said things in the sermon that directly opposed the way they believed and the way they did life, and yet he didn't isolate them, but he inspired them because they knew that he accepted them where they were and that he was with them in the journey as they were going along. And so the intent behind this sermon is that God has his best intentions for you. He wants your life to be blessed. Now, that's segment one of the sermon. The second segment of the sermon is the content. That is the substance, the information, the teaching. And it's really the largest part of the sermon. It goes from the second word of the sermon, there in verse 3, all the way through until the last paragraph of the sermon. And so really the majority of it is the content. And the substance of the sermon itself Jesus has 
three points or three things that he wants to communicate throughout the entire sermon. The first concerns the inner life. That is the transformed heart. It goes from Matthew chapter 5, verse 2, all the way through Matthew 5, 16. It's a segment of scripture that we would call the Beatitudes. You've heard them before. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are, and Jesus goes on through. But what he tells us there are, these are the attributes of what make a beautiful heart. And he highlights things like humility, empathy, gentleness, righteousness in our heart, not just in our actions, mercy, purity, peacemaking, standing for righteousness even in the face of persecution. He tells us that these are the things that make a life and a person beautiful and that as these things grow in our heart, we become what he calls salt and light. That which preserves, that which brings out flavor, that which gives vision and illumination and brings blessing to other people. As these things grow in us, we become effective for others The favor of God is upon our life. And so the first whole segment concerns the inner life. The second segment of the content portion of the sermon concerns our relationship with God or how we relate to God in his person and his ways. And that is from Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, all the way through chapter 6, verse 18. And what Jesus does in this segment of the sermon is that he gives them really what they wanted, what they wanted to hear, what they wanted to understand. And that is, what is the purpose of God's law? So he tells them the purpose and the severity of God's law. He explains to them God's standard of righteousness. And here's the amazing thing about this segment of the sermon, is that Jesus drives the standard even deeper than they had in their most strictest interpretation. Jesus takes the law of God and he makes it even more strict. He says, you guys have read, you shall not kill. But I say to you that if you have been angry with a person, haven't dealt with that anger in the right way, then you're guilty of murder. What? You guys have read that you should not commit adultery. It's one of the Ten Commandments. But I say unto you that if you even look at a person of the opposite sex and lust after them in your heart, you've already committed adultery. In God's mind, you've already committed the sin. It's a mark against you. What? How do you, how do you, you can't see what I'm thinking, can you? Jesus took their teaching on divorce and he highlighted it and magnified it. He made the standard even higher. Jesus took their standard of justice and he made it even harder. He took their standard of equity and he made it even more. He said the standard is high. And he says two things about it. In chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus said concerning the standard of God's law, he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and of the Pharisees, then you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You can't get into heaven unless you are more righteous than the religious people of Jesus' day. Now, that sounds extreme, but we find out they weren't so righteous. You know, that gives me a little bit of hope. But what Jesus says on the other side of all of that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, is he says, be ye therefore what? Perfect. Even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Jesus raises the bar of behavior to the level of perfection. And you know what's amazing? Is that he leaves it right there. He says nothing more about it. 
He says, this is the standard of God's law. Well, he moves on and he begins to talk more about our relating to God. And he says something remarkable. He says essentially that God is invisible, but God is very present. Therefore, when you pray, when you fast, and when you do good deeds, he calls them alms, you know, things that you give, give of yourself. He says you can afford to do those things invisibly in simplicity and in secret. Because God who is invisible sees what's done in secret and you will be rewarded openly. So when you relate to God, you don't have to do it in a way where you seek the validation or approval of another person. You can do it just before God, and he's present to see and know the condition of your heart and what you're doing, even if no one else does. You don't need to be visible when you pray, give, and serve. So Jesus talks about our relating to God in that way. And then the remainder of the sermon, the third part of the sermon is instructions for life. It goes from chapter 6, verse 19, all the way through 7, verse 23. It's the last portion before Jesus gives the assignment or the application of the sermon. And you can boil down what Jesus says in this segment into seven statements, seven things that Jesus communicates through this long passage of scripture and i'm going to give them to you they'll go up on the screen if you're good with your notes you can write it down if you're good with your phone you could snap a picture you take a pic but here's what jesus essentially says giving instruction for life in the segment of the sermon he says value what is eternal not what dissolves it's that portion where jesus talks about storing up treasures in heaven and not storing up treasures for yourself on earth He says, someday you're going to come to the point at the end of your life when you're about to lay your head down for the last time and you're going to realize what's truly valuable and it isn't anything that you can obtain or acquire in this world. And he says, if you can learn to live your life backwards, then you'll have the wisdom of storing up your treasures in heaven where they'll last for you eternally. You know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm neither a fan nor a foe of Rush Limbaugh. But I heard that he was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer and love him or hate him. The man has done with his life. What is his passion? And he's made something of it. He's fulfilled what he believes is his purpose. And along the way, he has accumulated an immense amount of wealth. But what does it all mean now? He's about to lay his head down for the final time. We don't know when, and God give him healing and recovery and more time if that's his will. But to think you can acquire all that this world could give, but someday you're going to lay your head down and you can take none of it with you, and what will you then have? Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Live for what's valuable, not for what dissolves. The second thing Jesus says then concerning our life is that faith is the cure for anxiety. It's one of my favorite passages of the New Testament, honestly. It's Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. It's 10 verses. And in 10 verses, Jesus says four times, in 10 verses, four times, he says, take no anxious thought. Meaning that here comes the anxious thought. And you have the choice whether or not you're going to take it and think about it and let it in and start bouncing around in, in your head, in your mind. What's going to happen if? What if this happens? I have a cough. My throat is sore. What am I going to do now? It's probably I'm going to die. Uh, you can take it. Or you can say, you know what? Jesus didn't just give me permission. Jesus commanded me not to take this thought. So I'm not taking it. 
Four times in 10 verses, he says, take now. You say, how in the world do you do that? Do you know what the answer is? Faith. Because he says in chapter 6, verse 30, he says, if God so clothe the grass, which today is tomorrow's casting on, how much more will he not more clothe you, O you of little what? Faith. See, faith, faith, believing that God is in it no matter what it is. That's the cure for anxiety. Faith is the cure for anxiety. He goes on to say, thirdly, that love and trust are to be given. Mistrust is earned. It's that famous phrase that you and I have probably heard more times than we like, where Jesus says, judge not, lest you be judged. With what measure you judge, it will be judged back upon you again. And then he talks about the sliver in my eye trying to remove, or the beam in my eye while I'm trying to remove the, the sliver from someone else's eye. Essentially, what Jesus is saying there is that, listen, your mentality, and what I'm calling you to do is to extend love and trust towards people regardless of what you think they're all about in your finite assessment of what they are. I want you to love and trust them on the front side and if they give you reason to not trust them, then you don't have to cast your pearl before the swine. Love and trust are given. Mistrust is earned. So you give people the benefit of the doubt, and you give and extend love and open your life to people until they give you a reason not to. That's what Jesus says. He goes on to say, fourthly, that prayer is a first resort, not a final option. It's the portion of the sermon where Jesus says, hey, guys, ask and it's going to be given to you seek and you find knock and the door is going to be open to you which of you as a good father would not give good gifts to your children how much more will your father not give his gifts to those that ask him jesus encourage us imploring us to ask isn't it amazing how we make prayer a last resort we try everything on our side to fix something and when nothing else works then we say all right let's sit down and pray about this And yet Jesus is saying, don't make it a last resort, make it a first resort. Ask God. He wants to do in your life. Number five, the golden rule. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. You guys know it all, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If you want a good measurement of how to treat other people, then measure how you feel when people treat you a certain way. If you are in a situation, maybe in the early years of your employment and you're treated a certain way by a boss, a manager, or someone of a different title, remember what that feels like and mark it in your mind that when you climb beyond where you are, you're not going to treat the people under you the way you were treated in that time. Just think, feel, and then use those things to turn your behavior the correct way at the right time. Sixthly, Jesus says, choices matter. And listen, some choices matter more than others. It's the segment of scripture where Jesus says that there is a narrow, small door and a narrow, small, straight passageway that leads to life. And then there's a wide way, a wide path and a wide gate. And you get to choose which one you're going to take. You can take God's narrow way that promises to lead life every time. Or you can go the way of the world, but the choice, the ball is in your court. God is not going to take away your free will to make the decisions for your life that you want to make. But understand that choices have consequences. If you choose God's way, the consequence is going to be life and blessing. 
But if you choose the world's way, then the consequence is going to be destruction and ultimately damnation. You have choice and choices matter. And then finally, number seven, Jesus says, open your eyes and use your brain. I shared one of the things that I get to do here at the church is about twice a year I share with the nursery school kids. I know you're jealous. I know you, you guys wish you wish you got to do that. Like I got, I get to, and, and I got to this past week. And, and so this past uh, Friday, I shared with a small group of nursery schoolers. I'm really good at relating to them. I'm right on their level, right there, three-year-old mind. And <laughs> I, I channel Mr. Rogers. That's what I try to do. I'm just like, talk to them, you know, get in their world, like be on, be there. And, and so I was trying to talk to them about jealousy and I tried to connect and I failed miserably uh, as I as I shared with them, but I, I just was trying to talk about jealousy, and I said, "Have have you ever had something uh, that someone else didn't have? And have have you ever seen someone that has something that you have?" And one of the little kids raised their hand, and that's so scary because you don't know what's going to happen. And so I said, "What?" And she said, "I know someone who doesn't have a brain." <laughs> And, and I couldn't hold it back. I said, so do I. <laughs> I, I know a few people, you know, <laughs> that don't have a brain, you know. <laughs> but, but Jesus is saying, yes, yes, you do. You have a brain and you got to use it. Okay. So he says, look, you see a fig tree and you don't expect that you're going to gather thorns from a fig tree. What are you going to get from a fig tree? Figs. If you see a grapevine. You're not expecting that you're going to find figs on it. What are you going to find? Grapes. So what Jesus is basically saying is he's saying, open your eyes and observe the world that's going on around you. Learn something. Begin to make connections and use your brain to understand that there's good and there's bad in the world. There's good and there's bad in people and find the right place in all of that. Feel your way around. Use your brain. Sometimes people think that faith and brain are opposites they don't go together that's not true and so you got to use your brain that's what jesus is saying in this whole thing and so jesus is teaching us to learn clues so jesus essentially in this segment of the scripture gives us those seven things in a nutshell and then he moves to the closing portion of the sermon which is the assignment the application the action what is it that i'm to do and the passage is in chapter 7 and it begins in verse 24 and i want to read it because this is the part where we respond Jesus says, therefore, whosoever hears these sayings of mine and doeth them, does them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. Are those verses in the system? Can they go up there? Matthew 7, 24, now 25. He says, and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that hears these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat upon the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And then it came to pass that when Jesus ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine for he taught them as one that had authority or smika and not as the scribes. He was one that knew something, and they knew that he knew something. It inspired them to move. Jesus basically says, listen, here's the assignment. Here's the action. Is that it's not enough just to hear the things that I'm saying. It's not enough to intellectually or mentally ascribe to the truth or the validity of them. 
It is everything that you become a doer of these things and they reflect in the way that you live your life. That they translate into the way you think and the way you feel and the way you are and the way you relate and the things that you do in your life. The pathway between God's intention for you, that is blessing, and your experiencing of that blessing, the pathway is obedience and action. It's doing the things that God says. The action is a faith response. Now, here's the amazing thing. You say, well, how do you do the things that Jesus is saying here? What does that look like? Listen, it's a faith response. This entire sermon that Jesus just preached is a call to faith. It's a call to believe. From the Beatitudes all the way to the benediction at the very end where Jesus closes it out, he's saying that faith is the action. I want you to think about this for just a second. The sermon starts with a call to faith. Because even at the beginning, when Jesus says, blessed, communicating even as God's intention for your life, that this is what I want to do in your life, I want to fill your life, I have to believe that. I have to come to faith to realize that God has the best intentions for me. And sometimes that's difficult. Because I know many Christians, I've been there myself, where it's hard for me to believe that God's intentions for me are actually good. A lot of times I think that God's intentions for me are revenge. That these things are happening in my life because God's getting me back for all the things that I did to someone else or in, in a way that I failed or neglected to respond to him. Sometimes I think that, 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 that what I'm going through in this life is just some twisted purgatory, that I have to go through all this suffering before I can get to something good because I'm on some spiritual probation. And that's, that's a choice to believe that. I can believe that, but that's not God's intention. That's not what he says. And so right at the onset, I'm called, I'm face to face with God, and he's saying that my intention for your life is that I want to bless you, and I'm called to, at, to ask myself, am I going to believe that? Do I believe that? Because what I believe is going to translate into my life. If I believe that God's always trying to get me, even if he's not, I'm going to live with that demeanor. That's going to be my response to what happens in my life. Oh, this is God trying to kill me. And it's possible for you and I to enclose ourselves in a prison that we've created because we refuse to believe that God is for us and not against us and that the things that he's allowing in our life are working together for our good and not in some way to destroy or tear us down. The Beatitudes, they call me to faith as well. They call me to trust that change is happening in my heart as I follow him. Because let me tell you, I have tried in my own strength and by my own effort to produce the qualities of a beautiful heart. And you know what I have found? Failure on every attempt. I cannot be humble in and of myself. I cannot be a peacemaker and merciful I cannot be righteous in my heart. I can't do those things. I can't change my own heart. I've tried. I've made others believe that I've changed my heart. But what it is on the inside always comes out on the outside eventually. But Jesus isn't telling us that we're to change our own heart. He's telling us that we're to follow him. And as we follow him, he's going to produce the change in our heart. And so we don't notice it in the moment, but as we look back over 10 years, over 20 years of walking with him, we see that he's producing these things in us, and it causes us to choose to believe that if I continue to follow him, he's going to continue to create. But it's a faith choice. I must believe. The strictness of the law, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no case enter the kingdom of heaven, that is a call to faith. 
Because it causes me, it forces me to believe that unless there is a salvation that comes from something outside of myself, then I have no hope. Because if standard is perfection, then I fall insanely short of that. I'm disqualified. Does anybody find it interesting that Jesus left that segment kind of incomplete? I mean, he says be perfect. You, You would think that at that point he would say, now let me tell you what the solution is. He doesn't. He doesn't say, like, there's another. He just says, be perfect. Now let's move on. We've got more content to cover. Some of you probably were thinking that I did that too. You're like, wait, wait, where, where's the rest of the story? You, you condemned us all, and then you want us to keep listening to the rest of the sermon. I just want to die in my seat. What gives? It was ingeniously incomplete. You know why? Because the law of God is intended to bring conviction upon my soul. And what Jesus was doing is he was letting the law do its work. Wait, God requires perfection? I'm not perfect. Lust equals adultery equals hellfire? I'm guilty. Anger equals murder equals damnation? I'm done. What do I do? It forces me to look outside myself for a source of salvation, which is what God provided. The Apostle Paul will tell us later on in the New Testament that the purpose of the law of God was never to produce righteousness. The purpose of the law of God was to reveal the fact that I'm not righteous. And thus it drives me to find a righteousness that's outside of myself, and that's what God provided in the cross of Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin, that's Jesus, became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him, even to them that believe in his name. The declaration of Christ on the cross is that I am perfection, dying the death and paying the price for imperfection. And that whosoever will receive the gift of my righteousness that I am providing by dying in your place I will impart to them a salvation that they couldn't pay for and that they could never earn. But it bids me to believe because I can't do anything to earn it and I can't do anything to help. And so the law drives me to faith. It calls me to faith in a salvation that's outside of myself. Jesus' teaching on prayer and giving and fasting in secret calls me to trust that he hears, he sees, and he knows what's invisible and what goes unseen. And that I don't need the validation or the help of a human being in the situation that I'm in. I have to believe that. Wait, you mean, God, if I just close the door and pray in secret and no one ever hears me pray out loud, that's okay? That's preferred. Well, no, maybe not. But maybe before God. You mean, God, I don't, I, I don't have to give money in a way that people see it and know about it in order for... I, I don't have to... No. He sees, he knows, but I have to believe that. It's faith. Jesus' teaching on anxiety forces me to trust. It forces me to trust. It bids me to trust that even though I'm in a situation right now that I can't understand why I feel this way, why the stress is so great, why the circumstances are so deep and so difficult, yet I trust to believe that he's with me in it, that he's carrying me through this, that he's got this in his hand and that he's not going to let me sink and that these fears are irrational and they're not going to come upon me. I have to believe that. Faith is the cure for anxiety. Jesus' teaching on relationships bids me to trust him to love people unconditionally. 
that he'll fill what man can't, that he'll heal what man wounds, that he'll restore what man takes away, that he'll provide insight to see what's unseen on the surface. And by faith, as I receive what he said and live it out, I can afford to love people that aren't responding to my love, to continue to give to people that aren't reciprocating, and also, when necessary, to guard my heart against those that are abusing me. But I do that by faith. Jesus' teaching on fatherhood and the fatherhood of God calls me to make prayer a first resort and not a final option. But that's faith. It's faith to believe it. And Jesus calls me to trust that obedience is worth the effort and the attention that it takes. Listen, to walk with God is to walk by faith. And faith looks like something. It says in Hebrews that faith is the evidence of things unseen. And so at some point, if I'm going to walk with him, if my life is going to reflect knowing him, then I'm going to have to step out and trust him in the way that I'm living. And so if I'm believing God in the things that he says, then my life is going to begin to reflect that promise. And when Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me and you'll find rest for your souls, then to take his yoke is to begin to live things out according to his word. And that means that I have to stop trying to change myself. It means I have to stop trying to save myself. It means I have to stop trying to control every outcome and every element of what's going on in my life. It means I have to stop trying to get validated by people and seeking the approval of people and seeking only the approval that comes from God. And it means that I have to stop trying to figure everything out all the time. And I need to lay down and trust him and live my life completely for him. And you know what happens when you start doing that, and you start releasing that and letting God control those things? You suddenly have energy and power and time to just live and serve in the purpose that he made you for. You start to walk with him and live, and there's freedom in it. And so I ask you tonight, just by way of reflection, application, do you believe God? Do you believe that God's intention for your life is to bless you? I believe that there's many that haven't settled that. They haven't come even to that place where they believe that God really wants to bless them. They can't receive it. They're afraid to even accept it. But do you believe that God wants to bless you? Do you believe that if you order your life according to God's word and according to God's ways, that he's going to bring you to the place that he ultimately designed you for? And is your belief enough to inspire a willingness for conviction and change. My kids were going through this. I don't recommend this. I do and I don't. We're going through this Dave Ramsey thing. It's part of their homeschooling. It's like figuring out how to manage money. I have never felt more stupid in my entire life than, than when I watch these things. And it's like, it's like going to a marriage conference. I don't do that. I don't do that. I don't do that. I don't do that. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. You know, the whole thing. But he has this saying that, that has stuck with me that I like. He says that if you want to live like no one else is living, then you have to live like no one else is living. And, and his point is that, you know, like if, if you just get it swept up in the whole thing of just spending and buying and credit and all that stuff, that's, that's what everybody's doing but if, but if you don't want to live like that, if you want something to ha- show for what you're working for and living for, he says, then you're, you're going to live differently than someone else. So if you want to live like no one else is living in a good way, then that means you're going to have to live like no one else is living. You're going to do things different than other people. 
And what Jesus is seeking to communicate in his teaching is he's saying, listen, I want to give you a life like no one else is living. But it's going to require in your life the choices that you make and the way you conduct yourself on a day-to-day basis that you live like no one else is living. And it starts with a call to faith. Simply this. Do you believe? Because if you believe, then you're going to do. That belief is going to translate into action. I want to close the service a little bit differently tonight by way of, of response or giving you a chance to respond. I know that in this room right now, there's a, a broad spectrum of people from unbeliever and skeptic and person that was drug here for some reason and you came all the way to the person that's been walking with Jesus for a very, very, very long time. And, and the response for every single one of us, both the unbeliever and the believer, is the same. Because if you're the unbeliever and you can hear the voice of the Savior tonight who's pleading with you to come into your life and do things that only he can do and you choose to believe that and put your faith in Jesus Christ then to declare faith and to say that I believe is to let him in and to let the work of his spirit and his life begin working in you and the transformation and change and the path that will bring you there. It starts there. For the person maybe that's walked with him for a very long time and you believe you're saved, your name is written in heaven, but you realize, you know what, there's areas of my life where I haven't been living by faith. There's things that I haven't let go of yet and I'm not trusting him in yet. Part of the reason for my anxiety is because I'm not trusting him and I'm trying to control and I'm worried about things that are going to happen because I'm not sure if I'm confident in his goodness or his ability or his care. And so, yes, I have faith, but my faith is weak. And so the response for you is to declare before him, I believe. And so I'm going to stand aside and Brad and... Ashley are going to just play for a minute. And and what I want to give you the opportunity to do right here in this place, the family of God, is to individually stand to your feet at the moment you want to, if you want to, and just utter the words, I believe. And I'm standing aside. I yield the floor to Jesus. And as you stand and you just say, I believe, you are saying to God, I receive what you say, and I choose to believe what you say. And I want it to reflect in my life. And I want the words of the church to resonate in the room and to flow up to heaven and let your words be the response of saying, Jesus, I believe. So let's take a moment and I'll begin. I believe. that you've heard the individual voice of of each that tonight made a profession before you. And Lord, where we need more faith, we pray that you would stir it up within us. So help us, Lord, not to just hear the things that you say, but fill us with the power of your spirit to do and live out what you've spoken. No matter where we are tonight, God, increase our faith. Give us more of your presence more of your spirit, that we might live fully and completely for you. Hear our prayer tonight, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.